So we are starting a new series today that's going to go through the end of the year. Um, we finished up a series on the book of Revelation. And those books that we made available, I just want to let you know, um, for purchase, if you didn't purchase one, but you want to maybe read one of those books that we made available, they are in our church library, um, which is still not quite set up. But if you reach out, I can get one of those in your hand. Uh, you can check it out a little bit early, even before it's ready to go. And uh, we can have those for you. The, the, the Bible Project um, ma- or diagrams and the script for... The book of Revelation are still available. There's a couple copies left on the table out in the lobby. So if you want to grab one of those or you want to grab one for someone else, we've had people online reach out. Uh, We will ship them to you. Uh, We'll mail them to you. They're just a a piece of paper. It doesn't cost much to mail them. So if you're watching online and you want a copy of those, we'd be glad to take care of that for you as well. And so we finished up that series basically talking about how as people in the kingdom of God, we're supposed to live out our days here on the earth. The book of Revelation was not given to us so that we could know all of the details about who the Antichrist is or what's going to happen in the last days, but was really given to us as an encouragement to be faithful even when the kingdoms of this world look like they're winning the war, if you will. And that cycle is going to be repeated over and over. So do we get to see a picture of what the world's going to be like when Jesus returns? Well, yeah, because this is what the world has been like since Jesus left. And so it's just the pattern of the kingdoms of this world and how they operate and how the church should respond to that. And that's what that series was all about. Then last Sunday, um, I did this sermon called Words to Live By where we talked about just four words that have been a part of my life, a part of our church culture, Uh, the words humble, the words honor, constant, and persevere were the four words that we talked about this week. And in some ways, they're going to probably keep coming up in this series um, and in all series because they're, they're a part of the culture of Restoration Church. Our church, Restoration Church, We changed our name to be Restoration Church because we believe God wants to bring restoration to all lives on earth and ultimately to the earth. And now that will be fully accomplished when Jesus returns to this earth a second time. Like that's when restoration is complete. But until then, we keep striving the way the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 challenges us, strive for full restoration. Don't live with this, well, it's not going to be perfect till Jesus comes mentality. Strive for full restoration. Strive for what could be today. In just a moment, God can break the chains of addiction. In just a moment, God can break the the sin pattern in your life that you've been wrestling with. In just a moment, God can restore a relationship that looked absolutely hopeless. That's the God we serve. And so we keep making decisions that are, are leading us in that direction, and we keep asking God to work. We're a church that believes we should work like everything depends upon us, but we should pray like everything depends upon God. And if we do those things, the kingdom will come in our lives. That restoration will happen. We also changed our logo to a table. That was actually Pastor John's idea. Um, He actually presented it to me probably a year and a half before we even launched it. And honestly, my first words to him were, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Um, why would we do a table? Like, what does that say about a church? What are we going to start having meals together? And, um, but as soon as we had that conversation, we talked through it a little bit. He's like, just hear me out. 
He would say that a lot. I actually learned um, during his time here, he helped me learn probably the hard way for him to be slow to speak. That just the first thing that pops into your head doesn't always have to come out of your mouth. Yeah, we do have self-control. And so, um, but he processed it with me. And then everywhere I turned, I kept seeing tables. Now, I, I know that there's this little part of your brain back here that once you are exposed to something, then you have a, a, like a category for it. So then you see it everywhere. Um, but there's this group in Minneapolis called the Table Coalition. And it's a group of pastors and ministries and churches that work together, that come around a, a, not a literal table, but a figurative table to grow together, to learn together, to challenge each other, to be in accountability together. And they call it the Table Coalition. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. And then there's a church in Sioux Falls called At the Table Church. At the Table. And it's a restaurant. Every, like they opened a restaurant and then they meet there for church services. And there's a whole lot that goes with that as well. There's another church that meets in Sioux Falls at Shenanigans, the restaurant, on Thursday nights. Their church meets at that location, and they have a table as their logo. And so I, I literally started seeing this everywhere, and so I thought, well, maybe he's not as crazy as I thought. Maybe he's onto something. Um, and so we started talking about it and trying to articulate what the table means. And I promise you, I'm still trying to figure out what the table means. Um, I, I know it's a place of inclusion. I know it's a place of engaging people. I know it's a place of value. It has a lot to do with what Jesus did when he walked the earth. Uh, we've talked about it before, the table manners of Jesus. Um, Jesus ate with people in his time period. He sat at a table with people and he gave them value. And the people around him didn't know what to do with it because it wasn't supposed to be done. Or at least they interpreted Scripture in a way that that's not supposed to happen. But Jesus showed us a new way. A way of responding to people rather than reacting to people. A, a way to actually empathize with people or listen to people and try to understand where they're coming from. Here's the thing. The things that people face in their lives may not excuse their behavior, but it sure does explain it. And it gives us a place to, to maybe show a little bit of empathy and sympathy and come at it from a different angle. And not an angle of superiority, but an angle of, hey, I maybe haven't walked the same path as you, but I've experienced the same kind of difficulties that you've experienced too. So the table teaches us a lot. In fact, just this last week, um, someone sent me a sermon and said, hey, you're going to love this sermon. And it was called, I, I don't exactly remember the title of it, but it was about the table. Uh, it's by one of my favorite pastors, John Tyson, who pastors in New York City. Uh, I just love him because he's got a cool accent. And, uh, and he pastors in New York City. No, I, that's not why I love him. Uh, he preaches truth, and I love it. And he, this is what he said. I love this quote. In the middle of that message, he said, the Pharisees missed the heart of God's mission in the world. They thought it was about preserving moral purity, but for God, it was about rescuing sick humanity. See, the Pharisees didn't want to sit at a table with people that would make them impure. And they missed what Jesus was coming to do was to rescue those people. And the way to rescue them was to give them a seat at a table with him to show value to them. He didn't excuse their sin or behavior but he dealt with it from a place where they were on, where he, a place of mercy. That's what the table was all about for Jesus. And you have to remember, Jesus ate with Pharisees too. 
There are those in our, our world today that are like, yeah, it's the Pharisees, it's church people, it's religious people that I can't stand. Well, Jesus loved them too, and he ate with them, and he showed value to them. So if I don't care what group of people that you can't stand or don't like, um, every group should be invited to your table, period. That's what we believe at Restoration Church because that's how ministry happens. And when I, when I heard this quote this week about preserving moral purity, a lot of times um, that's what we think of when we think of like words like holiness or being perfect and what that means. And the series that we're going to start on this week is called The Perfect Series. The Perfect Series. And not because I think it's going to be a perfect series, but I want to talk about what the Bible means when it talks about perfect or when it talks about holiness. What does that look like? And I want to start with this idea of purity because purity, by definition, just means to be free of contaminants. Free of contaminants. It's pure. But when we focus, the focus of our purity should not be on the thing that is pure, but it should be on the purpose of why it's pure. So think about drinking water. Pure drinking water is not supposed to just sit on a shelf so we can admire it and be like, oh, pure drinking water. Yes, I like it. Um, it's meant so we can drink it. Like that's the purpose of the purity of the water. It's not supposed to impress us, but it's supposed to nourish us. It's supposed to help us. And so the focus of purity in our lives also has a purpose. That purpose is not bragging rights. It's not so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's not so that we can be uh, morally superior to people that aren't as pure as us. The purpose of purity in our lives is to help more and harm less. Help more and harm less. Purity is supposed to be a blessing to us, to our families, to our friends, to people around us, because sin, sin is damaging. And when sin has access to our lives, it hurts us. It hurts our purpose, the purpose that we were created for. So we reject it and we walk towards purity. And the goal is to set aside anything that harms us or anything that contaminates us and embrace what is pure. But when we divorce purity from purpose, it becomes weaponized. When we divorce purity from its purpose, it becomes weaponized. When love is no longer the motivation to abstain from sin, we use purity to control or reject or shame or label other people. And we maybe don't, don't do it with our words, but sometimes we do it with our attitudes. If you think of the Pharisee who was praying before the Lord and said, I thank God that I'm not like sinners, like that guy over there. I'm, I thank God I'm not like him. Well, guess what? You are exactly like him. Except for the grace of God, you're the same. And that's how purity becomes weaponized. Think about God. God is absolutely pure. He is totally pure. There's no blemish in him whatsoever. And yet his purity is a blessing to us, not a weapon against us. While we were his enemies, he died for us. He brought us to the table. Like, that's his purity. So when God exercises love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or mercy or faithfulness, all of those qualities actually bring transformation to our lives. His purity becomes a blessing for us. And then God asks us 
as He puts His Spirit in us to start embodying those same qualities, not so that we can claim the more high ground over others, and not because we're going to get graded someday on our sanctity, and not because our salvation hangs in the balance, because where does our salvation start and end with? Jesus and His work on the cross. But because purity is a work of a blessing to us and for us. Purity is not an end in itself. Purity is a journey. It's a process. It's not an end. And so as we talk about purity, as we talk about what the Bible means when it talks about being perfect over these next couple weeks, that's the, the ideas that I, wanna, I want us to keep in mind. I want us to, to think about how to keep pursuing this, not trying to gain our identity from our purity. Our identity is supposed to be rooted in the work that Christ has already done for us. Okay? We are already pure in the sight of God because of what Christ has done. So our pursuit of holiness or our pursuit of purity is not about earning something or gaining something. It's about, make, it's about harming less and helping more. Ourselves and those around us. Some of us are... are praying regularly for God to, to do a work in our lives. Oh, break this pattern or break this thing. And the problem is there, there are certain behavior patterns that we're doing in our lives. There's certain thoughts that we're continually thinking that are actually keeping us in that area of bondage. And we're actually asking God to remove it. And he's like, well, actually, I've already told you how to remove it by starting to do this. See, it's not about whether or not that's a sin. It's not about whether or not other people do it. It's not about whether or not you even want to do it. It's about whether or not as you start walking with God and as you start obeying the Holy Spirit and getting certain attitudes or thought patterns or behaviors out of your life, you start walking in purity or holiness. It actually begins to set you free from some of the bondages that you used to be in. That's a good message right there. But... It's not that God can't deliver us and break those things. He can. But if we continue those same patterns that we're in, we're going to walk back into the same thing He just delivered us from. So there has to be a sense of change. So the perfect series. In the, the month of January, <coughs> excuse me, I want to start a series where we're going to study the book of Matthew together. And I think this series is actually going to set us up for that one that we're going to start in January. But over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to be the perfect Christian. I'm going to talk to you about how to have the perfect marriage, the perfect family, maybe how to take the perfect vacation, how to live the perfect life, how to find the perfect church, how to you know, be in the, the perfect job. We're going to talk about all of these perfect things in our lives. So you, you're not going to want to miss it. You're going to learn so much. Um, I myself am a recovering perfectionist. I'm a recovering perfectionist. Um, when I first got married, uh, I was really bad. I mean, I, my college dorm room, I didn't have a roommate except for my freshman year. Uh, I didn't like roommates because they were never as neat or they didn't put things where I wanted them. Uh, I was a perfectionist, so everything had a place. People would come in my room for open dorms and stuff, and they would like pick something up and look at it, and they'd put it back, and I'd walk over and move it back where it was supposed to be. Um, literally, that's how deep my sickness went. Um, and so I remember when we first moved to Huron, the, the pastor's wife at the time, Lynette Cuno, she was, she was in our bedroom talking to Christy, and Steve, her husband, and I are downstairs, and she's like, Steve, 
You have got to come up here and look at this. And I'm like, what in the world? So we walk in the bedroom. She is laughing hysterical. She's like, look at his dresser. And my dresser, like, I'm like, doesn't everyone live like this? Like everything on the top of the dresser is perfectly where it goes. If you open any drawer, everything, like underwear goes here, socks go here, T-shirts here. Like everything has its place. It's just perfect. Perfect. But I found as you start like doing life with someone else who maybe isn't as perfect as you, or their perfection is just in different areas than you, um, or you have kids, <laughs> that'll cure you of perfectionism right there. Um, you just, yeah, if you would see my bedroom today, uh, I thought about taking a picture and putting it on the screen, <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> uh, I did not take a picture of my dresser today to put on the screen, but I am a recovering perfectionist. Now, not just because of my dresser, but because of the way I live my life. Like, sometimes our responses to things that are happening to us or around us are a result of these expectations that we had. You know, we expected our spouse to respond this way, and when they didn't, I don't have the perfect marriage. Well, your idea of perfect might be off. Um, or when my kids, you know, they, they don't maybe behave the way I wanted them to behave, um, I, you, we start experiencing frustration, sometimes anger. Um, sometimes we walk away from marriages or jobs or whatever situation because it wasn't perfect or it wasn't good. Um, and the problem wasn't the other person or the problem wasn't the situation we were in as much as it was maybe the expectations that we had for that thing. And so all of us in some way are perfectionists. Yeah. In some area of our lives, there's something that, uh, and generally you'll notice it when you start to feel frustration uh, or when you notice there's unmet expectations. That's the area of perfectionism in your life. For some of us, it's driving. You know, we think we're the best drivers in the world. So anytime someone is in front of us driving slower or not using turn signal, you know, well, how dare they not be as perfect as I am as a driver? right? That's kind of how we live our lives. And these areas of perfectionism we have to deal with because sometimes they're debilitating to us. Sometimes we expect too much of us or we expect too much of God. We, God didn't follow through the way we expected. And so we walk away from faith because we misunderstand what God was saying. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, this is probably the clearest passage we have. We're going to look at a bunch over the next couple of weeks. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the problem with that is in English, the word perfect means something to us that it may or may not mean in the language the Bible was written in. So the New Testament is written in Greek. More than likely, they didn't speak in Greek. They spoke in Aramaic, but it was written in Greek. Okay, so you've got all of these nuances, if you will, as trying to put the Bible in our hands in the English language. And many times in the Hebrew language or the Greek language, there are multiple words that mean, different, mean the same English thing. Like there are different words in the Bible for the word love. Okay, you're, you're familiar with this. You've probably heard it at some point in church. So here's the word love. It could mean the Greek word phileo means to have affection or brotherly love towards others. Or the word agape also means love. And it is not void of affection. Okay, it still has some affection attached to it, but it is not led by or doesn't rely on affection. Phileo re requires some emotion 
attached to it. Like, I don't say I phileo you if I don't feel any affection towards you. But if there's like this bond, hey, we're brothers in Christ, we're sisters in Christ, and I feel that affection, I would use the word phileo. But the word agape is a choice. It's a verb. It's an action. And I choose to act in love towards you whether I feel anything or not because that's the type of self-sacrificing love that God gave to us. God so loved agape the world. He didn't phileo the world. Now, God has affection for us. There are passages where God talks about the affection that he has for his children, but God acts in love whether he feels emotion of love or not, even though we know he does feel it. So in English, you read your Bible and it says love. What's it saying? How do we know? What, what's, what's that word love mean? And th- they're every word almost in the Scripture, and it's like, wow, how do we really know? And so when we come to perfect, the word for perfect most of the time in our series is going to be the word teleos in Greek, but it actually comes from the Greek word teleo. The Greek word teleo just means end or finish. End or finish, that's what teleo means. But teleos means perfect, mature, complete, grown up, without defect. Uh, it can mean so many different things. So your English translation sometimes may put the word perfect, sometimes may put the word mature, but it's the exact same Greek word. So there's a full range of meanings. So when we, when we take the Bible casually and we just, you know, every once in a while we open it up or we just read it every day for a few minutes and we just, and we don't ever dig into it. Now, I am all for devotional reading. I am all for just opening up the Bible and reading it, letting it speak to you. I believe God works in that way. We're going to talk about that next week because we're going to talk about the perfect book next, next week. I'm all for that. But the, our problem in our culture is not that we don't devotionally read the Bible. We do. We don't study the Bible. We don't dig into the Bible. We don't say, hey, that could mean a whole lot of different things. E- even just reading it from different translations to get a different viewpoint of what's being said in that passage. Or pulling up the, the blueletterbible.org and, uh, or biblewhatever.com. I mean, there's so many different resources that are free that we could use to, to really study what that means. And uh, we just don't like to go deep. And so sometimes we misunderstand it. Like in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, here's a word, hapas, that means perfect. And in this passage, it's like Christ is displaying this perfect patience. But that's a totally different word for perfect. And that word means whole or everything, all in totality. Like it, it means that, there, he, that Christ is the epitome of um, perfect. Most of the time, that word perfect is not used in conjunction with us. Because none of us are the epitome of anything. <laughs> and yet, sometimes we read perfect, like Matthew chapter 5, 48, be perfect as, as, as if we have to be the epitome. And if I'm not the epitome, whether I'm not or whether my spouse isn't or whether my, my coworker isn't, then I start judging them. Because, hey, you're called to be perfect. Well, what does perfect mean? It doesn't mean the epitome of everything like we would normally mean. In Titus chapter 3, verse 2, when Paul is writing, the ESV, the ESV is the only one that does this that I know of, they take the word courtesy and they say perfect courtesy. Well, here's the funny thing. That word is not in the Greek manuscript at all. Perfect. 
The ESV, the translators decided, we're going to put the word perfect courtesy to help explain what we think Paul was really saying by the word courtesy. Perfect courtesy. Now, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's translators trying to help us understand the meaning of the Scripture. But that word perfect isn't even there. And so I really want us over this series to, to, to come to a place where we understand what the Bible is saying for us, what the Bible is saying for people around us, and what the Bible is saying for the circumstances that we find ourselves in when it calls us to this idea of perfection. In the devotional, I Am Transformed, it's put out by a group called Sons and Daughters, um, the Bevere Boys. If you know John and Lisa Bevere, we've used their stuff quite a bit as a church. Their four sons have created this ministry called Sons and Daughters where they're trying to teach people their identity in Christ. Fabulous ministry, um, great resources. But they have this devotion called I Am Transformed. And this is what they say. God is perfect in every way, not just a few. We are far from perfect. Yet he doesn't roll his eyes at us while dropping passive-aggressive, semi-snarky comments about the dishes that we left in the sink, metaphorically speaking. You see, we tend to think of perfection as just being free from sin, error, or weakness. The issue is that we're works in progress. We make mistakes. We suffer lack. We struggle with weakness. So if perfect means never messing up, we might as well give up now. We're set for failure. In the Bible, though, the term perfect refers to the idea of becoming complete. It alludes to maturity, wholeness, fullness. We often see this term used to encourage growth in a variety of areas. So let's go back to Matthew 5.48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus has just told us that we're called to love our enemies. We're called to do good to those who hate us. He goes on and on and on. And he's connecting the idea of us growing in our love, the way we demonstrate love. You and I cannot stay immature. You and I cannot be toddlers and just react the way we feel like reacting. We can't treat people the way they treat us, the way toddlers do. If a toddler gets hit, what do they do? They hit back. If a toddler gets hit, or sometimes they just cry, and they tattle. Or you know, There's just a different reaction when you're a toddler, hopefully, versus when you're like in middle school or high school, or as an adult. And what Jesus is saying here is you've got to grow into this idea of love, this more perfect view, this more mature, complete view of love. He's not saying that, that we may ever come to this place where we do it perfectly, where you always just react with love towards your enemies. Where you always, But in the moment that you react badly towards your enemies, you're going to have a choice to make. You're going to have a choice to say, well, but I only acted that way because of the way they acted. I get that. I totally get that from a human standpoint. But here's the thing. When I'm on judgment day, me and Jesus are eyeball to eyeball, and he's like, I've given you my spirit. I've given you everything you needed for life and godliness. And I say, but, but Jesus, I only acted that way because of what they did. Yeah, that's not going to hold weight. Because when Jesus was mistreated, he did not retaliate. That's the nature he's now put in me. And so it's not like, oh, man, I'm, oh, I'm so stupid. I did that again. It's, man, that, I reacted that way. That has no place in my life because I'm a, son, I'm a son of God now. And so I need to act more like him. And so, Father, forgive me for acting that way. I mean, I know that 
I, I was mistreated, or at least I felt mistreated, and I know that that caused me to maybe lose control of myself, but I can do better than that. You've given me your spirit. I take ownership for it. It's not that I'm letting them off the hook. I'm not saying, oh God, they didn't sin. You know, they, uh, but I don't, I'm not in charge of them. I'm in charge of me. And maybe when I start reacting better, it's going to actually bring them to a place of conviction so God can work in their life. Or if it's someone I'm in a relationship with, maybe I need to have a conversation where we sit down over coffee and I say, hey, I just want you to know that when, when you act this way or when, when these words, when I hear these words, this is how I take them. I've had those conversations with people before and in tears, they're like, I never knew it was coming across that way. Because no one ever sat them down and just said, hey, this is how it comes across to me. We just assume they're being mean. But this is, in the body of Christ, this is how we, we do it. We, we want to grow into maturity. And I realize they're a work in progress too. They're probably better in some areas of life than I am. I'm just happen, happening to observe them in an area of life where I may think I'm better than them in this. And it may be true. I may have a better handle on this one area of life, but I'm not perfect we're, we're maturing. So we learn to give other people the benefit of the doubt as well as ourselves. The same phrase, be holy as I am holy. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, I believe is the first time we see it in Scripture, where God says, be holy as I am holy. But Peter repeats it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Again, that word holy, that word purity, that word perfect, they all kind of are saying the same thing. The word holy literally means to be set apart, totally unique, dedicated, pure, or divine. God is calling us not to behave perfectly all the time, but to keep striving toward how his character and nature is. Again, from the devotional I Am Transformed, they write this, I am holy trying to teach us, you know, our identity in Christ. So I am holy, so I stand out from the crowd. I recognize that holiness is not so much, so much more than, is, excuse me, holiness is so much more than following the rules. Holiness is not an attempt to be good enough. It's my journey of embracing everything my Father has for me, a journey into the beauty, wonder, and majesty of what it is to be, be a child of God and to share in His nature. It's his nature within that makes me stand out. God's holiness transforms every area of my life. And because of his spirit and grace, I can be holy in thought, word, and deed. To be holy is to be whole. To be holy is to be his. I am holy, so I stand out from the crowd. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, how do I inherit eternal life? He's like, keep the commandments. I've done all those. So Jesus says, if you would be perfect, if you would be perfect, go sell you, your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now, however you want to read that, again, it's that same word. Jesus isn't saying, if you sell everything you have and give it to the poor, from that day on, you will be perfect. No, he's saying to him, the next step of your journey toward perfection, toward being godlike, is to develop a generosity that is godlike. And God doesn't withhold anything. He gives all. 
So if you want to be perfect, if you want to be godlike, here's your next step. Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Jesus wasn't saying to all of us, all times, everywhere, if you own anything, you're not, being, you're not following God. That's not what he's saying. This guy's coming to him saying, what's the next step of my journey? Because what did Jesus say? After you sell everything, come follow me. There's going to be another step, but this is just the next one. And as we walk through our lives, he wants us to experience this journey of process with him. We try to tend to look at purity as a finish line that, in honesty, we're never going to get to until Jesus comes back to this earth. But it's a process that we're in. In John chapter 17, verse 23, Jesus is praying for all believers of all time, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, wouldn't that be great? And again, sometimes we get this idea as we're looking for the perfect church. And so we have this ex expectation of what other Christians should be like. And when they don't meet our expectations, we walk away from them. We walk away from churches. We walk away from other believers. We let offense into our hearts because, hey, they acted that way and they should have known better. Or maybe they're just on a different leg of the journey and you should offer them the same mercy that God is offering you every single day of your life. And this shouldn't make us feel bad about ourselves. It should actually strive us to pursue the, the power that God has put within us to, to harm less and help more. In John chapter 19, verse 30, here's our, our last verse of the day. This one's so good. Same word. Perfect. See if you can find it in this sentence. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's finished. It's the same word perfect. In this moment, what Jesus is saying is, your perfection no longer rests on you. I did it. I accomplished it. You're perfect before the Father because of me. You put trust in me. You put faith in me. You're perfect. Now, keep striving towards that perfection. The Apostle Paul talked about it. There's so many more verses we're going to unpack over the, this, this last month. But let me give you four things. I'm just going to give them to you quick. They're going to be a lot like the four things I gave you last week. Here's number one. Stay teachable. Stay teachable. Recognize there's not one of us that has all of our doctrine correct. There is a movement in our day where we're trying to have doctrinal purity that is actually causing us to be more divisive in the church than we've ever been. We have got to start showing better grace towards people. I get it. There's a whole lot of stuff being said that it's not a sin or this isn't a sin. Or, but we are going, we're going too far in the body of Christ, trying to be pure in our doctrine. Because here's the reality. There isn't a church on this planet that has a pure doctrine. There isn't one. The problem is we don't know where our impurity lies. And if we start thinking we're right, they're wrong, and we distance ourselves from them, they're not at our table, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And I'm watching people get wounded. I'm watching people get labeled. And I don't know that God's in it. Be teachable. Keep an open heart towards other people. You don't have to believe what everybody else around your table believes. Follow your own conscience. But before you label them outside the kingdom, 
you better be sure they're outside the kingdom. You better be sure this book is really black and white where you're drawing lines. Because I don't think it is everywhere we draw lines. Stay teachable. Number two, seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Study this book. Find resources online. Find groups you can study with. I love the group that I meet with on Thursday nights. Um, some of them are from our church. Some of them are not from our church. Some of them used to live here and moved away. And we wrestle through this series called the Bema series. And it's a podcast that helps us understand the scripture from a Jewish perspective. And this week, there was a prayer. Um, one of the teachers of one of these small groups was on. And uh, he didn't say much. But they asked him, like, what do you hope, as the, the people that you're teaching this series to in your small group, what do you hope they learn? This was his prayer. I hope they learn to be still and know him and experience him. I hope they uncover and discover him. To know that he loves them, that he's journeying with them right where they are right now, and he's with them. I'm like, dude, I don't think there's a person on the planet that wouldn't want that for their small group. Like, that's why we study the Bible together. We don't study the Bible together so we can learn cool facts and impress people with these biblical truths that we've learned. It's supposed to be to transform our lives, to bring us into an encounter with the, the God of the Bible. There are people today that exalt this book to a place that I think can, is unhealthy. This book is meant to lead us to, into an encounter with the living God. This book is not God. It's His Word, but it's to lead us to an encounter, not be our encounter. The Apostle Paul talked about coming to the Corinthian church. I don't come to you with wise and persuasive speech, but I come so that your faith would rest on the power of God. Now, if I would preach that to you today and it wasn't in Scripture, people would label me a heretic. Oh, your faith should not rest in the power of God. Their faith should rest in the Bible. Paul said he wanted the Corinthians to have their faith rest in the power of God. This book is very important. We're going to talk about it, the perfect book. But what that means for us, too. Okay, we got to keep moving. Number three, respond quickly. Respond quickly. Be quick to repent. When you recognize that you just acted in a way that is impure, go to the Lord instantly and be like, Lord, I, sh I repent. That has no place in my life. Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, 4, 5, and 6, you're children of light. Stop walking that way. That has no place in your life. That unwholesome talk, the way you just talked about that coworker, oh, Lord, my lips were way too loose in that moment. I repent. I'm not saying be flippant. Repent, but be quick with it. And don't be afraid to admit mistakes. Our identity is not in our performance. So if someone corrects you, um, here's the thing. Someone comes to you and says, hey, when you said that, that hurt my feelings, that was rude. Say, I apologize. I never intended it to come across that way. I apologize. It did come across that way to you. You can own it. It doesn't have to label you and follow you around. When you make mistakes and you correct your children and you were wrong, I hope you've learned as a parent to say, I'm sorry, I acted incorrectly in that moment. I let anger get the best of me and I should never have done that. Yeah, but you should see the way my kids acted. Who's the grown-up? Yeah, we, we can apologize. We can admit our mistakes, acknowledge our weaknesses. And then number four, keep growing. Keep growing. We have got to just keep growing. I misspoke. I want to give you one last scripture. I want to read Luke 8, 14. 
Jesus is telling the story about the seed. Remember the word of God that got planted in our hearts and some of it grew up. Some of it didn't grow at all. Some of it grew up quickly, but it got scorched. But then remember the seed among the thorns. Luke 8, 14. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the worries and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not perfect. Their fruit does not mature. That's the same word. You see, you can learn all the stuff. You can, like, receive it. You can even start showing fruit. But I'm interested in my fruit maturing. And in order to do that, I have to be willing to admit that I've got flaws, that I don't have it right, that I need people at my table to point some things out to me that maybe are different than what I would think or how I would interpret the Bible. And that's how, as a community, we perfect our faith together. And so over the next couple of weeks, those are some challenges, some things that we're going to keep talking through. Um, and I, I just encourage you, pray into some of these scriptures. Start doing your own search for this word in the scripture and all the places it appears. And don't just rely on me. I mean, the, I only have till the end of the year that we're going to do this, so we're going to even talk about the perfect Christmas. Woo! That's going to be a great week. You're going to never want to miss that one. But uh, my hope is one, for those of you that really struggle with your own identity and you're like the hardest on yourself, that you understand that God is with you and that you're on a process and a journey toward perfection. And then for those of us that maybe are harder on other people around us, that we start to develop a mercy and a grace that God offers to us daily that maybe we don't recognize and offer it to others. And so, Father, thank you for the ways that you have treated us. You've never treated us as our sins deserve. Thank you for sending your son to this earth to be the penalty for our sin. Jesus, thank you for willingly coming to be a sacrifice for us, but also to demonstrate what God always intended when he gave us his word. What it's like to live on this earth as a son of God, as a daughter of God. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, over this week ahead, for those that battle with their identity in Christ, Holy Spirit, just that you would strengthen that identity. That in ways that maybe they put themselves down with their own words or their, their, their thoughts that they sit in throughout the day, that you would help them to take those things captive and recognize that they're a son, they're a daughter of God, that they've been born again by putting faith in Jesus Christ, that they've been perfected right now. And give them the grace to be able to acknowledge weaknesses, to be able to acknowledge mistakes without moving into areas of shame and condemnation. Father, for those of us in the room that maybe are harder on people around us, maybe our expectations of them, family members, friends, co-workers. Maybe the, our expectations of, on them are not where they need to be. Maybe we're expecting more of them than we ought. Maybe we should be displaying levels of mercy and grace the same way that you've displayed towards us. And so I just pray for this body. God, I know that as we go through this series, you're going to speak a lot of different things to us. And I just pray, help us to grow and develop in the type of maturity, God, that's going to 
that's going to make a difference in our neighborhoods, in our community. And so, Holy Spirit, do that deep work in our lives now and in the weeks ahead, I pray. Speak clearly to us, especially in this week ahead. Help us to hear words that are coming out of our mouth that maybe we've become accustomed to. It shouldn't be coming out. Thoughts that we're allowing to dwell in our minds that we shouldn't. That are harming more. Help us to embrace the journey of purity and perfection in the way you've always intended. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. It was great to have you. Um, if you need prayer, if there's maybe something that you just want someone to agree with you on, maybe there's an area of struggle in your life, um, I'll be over here. Our prayer team can be here. And uh, we'd love to pray for you before you leave today. But if you need to leave, um, please feel free to be able to do that. Offering baskets are out on the table. Um, connect cards and all of the information about our church are at the, uh, out the table out in the lobby. We encourage you to stop by there before you go as well. And don't forget to meet someone that you've never met before before you leave today. God bless you as you go.